Hello and welcome back to the Future Work Life podcast and it's a bonus edition today. In a few weeks time I'm launching the new series which is a focus on my book Work Life Flywheel but I didn't want to leave you hanging in the meantime so I'm sharing a few of the conversations I've had on other people's podcasts over the last year or so and today's is focused on designing a life with meaning and it's from my conversation with Christopher Lockhead who was also the very first guest on this podcast when it launched three years ago. I'm very grateful to Christopher for all his support since then, both on the podcast and for the book. And I always love speaking to him. He's one of my favorite voices to listen to about all things marketing. He's also, of course, one of the godfathers of category design. And we had a lovely conversation on Follow Your Difference. So I'll leave it to Christopher to introduce the show. Now, almost everybody wants to design a legendary life and make a difference, but it can be harder than it sounds, or maybe not. On this episode, a very different conversation about how designing a life with meaningful work that truly works for you is possible for you. You see, our guest today is an entrepreneur, CEO, and best-selling author. His name is Ollie Henderson, and his new book is called The Work life flywheel harness the work revolution and reimagine your career without fear and i really enjoyed this conversation with ollie he's a great guy and we really get into a uh, heartfelt conversation about how we can all design a legendary life and i think by the end of this dialogue you'll have some new tools for living your life your way You're listening to Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, and we are the authentic business dialogue podcast for uh, leaders, marketers, and category designers with a different mind. Now put your mind in a different place, and as Joey Ramone said, hey-ho, let's go. So um, let's talk about how much we both love work-life balance. (laughs) Yeah. In some ways, I wonder if you wrote your book, and you're a lot nicer than I am, so this is probably not how you might express it, but as a bit of a middle finger to the whole idea of work-life balance. Well, it was kind of. I mean, there is... And actually, my uh, my editor asked me a few times whether I wanted the phrase "fuck work life balance" in my book, and I insisted that I had to keep it in there for a few reasons. Partly because the whole premise around that was about language, and you know, I'm, I'm preaching to the converted here about language, aren't I? But you know, I think the thing about work life balance is, and it's a lazy, it's a lazy feeling that we all have. We, it's something we think we should adhere to. Oh yeah, we should all have better work life balance. It kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, it has the best intentions. But it's frankly wrong. I mean, it's just wrong. It doesn't make sense. And actually, I think when I've spoken to people about it, they said, look, what's so bad about work-life balance? You're talking semantics here. This is just wordplay. I mean, you know, you, you get into the same thing. But actually, I think I think words matter. And like, I don't often quote Archbishop Sir Desmond Tutu, but I think this is an occasion to do it because he says language does not just describe reality. Language creates the reality it describes. And I think when you adhere and aspire for work-life balance, what you're saying is, I am going to place work and life against one another because work is bad and life is good. And if I can't p- find this equilibrium, then my life is not complete. Well, of course, for most people, that isn't a reality. And, you know, we could talk about where there are some real damaging effects, I think, when people, you know, really stick to this notion. But for me, it just didn't work. And I, I spent years trying to find it and failed. And I felt like a failure. And eventually I just realized it wasn't that everybody else had achieved it. Nobody achieved it. It's an, it's an impossibility. Yeah. Amen. Hallelujah, brother. Can you tell me that Desmond Tutu quote again? I haven't heard that one before, and it sounded amazing. Yeah. So he says, language doesn't just describe reality. Language creates the reality it describes. That that quote's in your book, is it not? It's not in the book, but I wish it was. Oh, I thought it was. Okay. I, maybe yeah. I heard you I've say written, I've written. I've, I've, I've recently written an article where I found it, and I... Um, and I'd wished I'd put it in the book because it just does such a great, it does a better job than I did in the book trying to articulate why it matters, why that last word in the phrase work life matters. Because, you know, and I, and I knocked this idea around for a while. And I know some people are quite fond of the idea of work life integration. 
And, you know, I think that's sort of better. It kind of describes the fact that these two things are connected. But, you know, the, the reason I went with Flywheel, the work-life Flywheel, is because what do we, most of us, what most of us are looking for is a sense of progress in our lives. They feel like we're making forward steps that we're building momentum in our life and actually most people when they talk about what gives them fulfillment and happiness in their jobs it's a sense that they are achieving progress and for me the flywheel just perfectly encapsulates that it's this idea that there isn't a single part of your work your life which is any more important than the other they're all interdependent and for me when i'm doing great work and i'm happy at work i'm a better person at home a better dad i'm a better partner and when i'm a better partner and i'm a better dad they manifest better more in my work so these things are just they 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 connect together if you get it to work together that's when life and work are good yeah which is why i appreciate your book and your work so much because i like you i reject the whole premise of the idea that that there's work here and there's life here no no we have life it's called life and sometimes we do work things and sometimes we do other things. And the other thing, and I know you touch on this, is I think for virtually everybody, a sense of fulfillment, a sense of contribution, a sense of creating or adding value and being compensated for that value is a huge part of a strong self-identity. Mm. You know, and I've heard stories about people who you know, retired from very big, high-pressure jobs and, you know, were um, up, in, up in years, and they decided they still wanted to do something. And then they volunteered, and then they got a job as a Starbucks barista, and then they, you know, to be out in the world and to be having fun, and, and maybe, yes, to make a little bit of money. But, but sort of this idea that, let me say it this way, I'm somebody who financially has not had to work since my late 20s. And so I find it – and that's a weird thing for somebody who grows up poor. It's a very weird thing. It's still a weird thing for me, very, very weird. But one of the things I've learned as a result is that um, people say, oh, well, you know, if I didn't have to work, I would do blah, 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 and it's great to go do all that stuff. And I've done the trips and I've done, all, you know, I've done many of the things that a lot of people say they would like to do if they didn't have to work. But uh, as Elon Musk says, and I live two blocks from one, but as Elon Musk says, beaches are boring. <laughs> I mean, I don't know about you, Ollie, but I, I, how long can you sit on a beach and read a book? Well, as somebody who can't sit still for very long, full stop, you can uh, you could probably appreciate it. I don't sit still very long on a beach. But no, you're right. And, I, and actually, I think this is why longevity and also reframing the relationship we have with work is actually an opportunity. So there's a, and I definitely quote this in the book. So there's a really great um, writer about business. Um, she's a professor at London Business School called Linda Gratton. And she has written a book called The Hundred Year Life, which reflected on the fact that we're living longer and what's going to happen to the economy and the, um, the social support and all of these things as the population grows older and more and more people are retiring and there's fewer and fewer people working. Well, I mean, there's a pretty obvious thing, pretty obvious answer to that, which is, don't retire at 60. And frankly, you're right. Most people, when they get to that age, assuming that at 60, that's it. You've got no contribution to make. It's, it's ridiculous. And she talks, actually, she talks about this idea, the contrast between what we previously thought was a three-stage life. You know, you go in education, then you get a job, and then you retire. It's just that isn't that doesn't exist anymore. So instead, you think about it as the multi-stage life where throughout our lives, we need to continue learning because when well, you look around us, like every day, we were just having a chat beforehand about ChatGBT. You know, these technologies are coming along all the time. What are you going to do? You're going to go to university for four years and learn everything you need for the rest of your life. That's not the way it is. You need to be learning all the time. So life comes along in these different stages and you might actually take time out mid-career to go on a sabbatical you make time take long holidays and that gives you the energy then to return to do more work and you know last point on it i mean if you listen to many of the most successful people in business politics in life often they're older and they've experienced a lot and the durability and staying power it comes that's what gives them the knowledge that gives them the motivation and i think that's why at the very beginning of the book i kind of start with this idea 
of mindset. And it sounds really obvious, right? Deciding what you want to do with your life and your goals, but it makes a big difference. So I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you another kind of interesting quote, which I always come back to on this because Stephen Covey, you might have back in the day read Seven Habits of Effective, Highly Effective People. And he talks about this really uh, interesting idea of reflecting on your vision for the future and beginning with the end in mind. And for me, I want to live a long life where I feel constantly fulfilled. I don't want to just, you know, earn enough money to quit my job and then sit around and do nothing. I want to constantly be challenged. So Covey says that it's incredibly easy to get caught on this trap in the busyness of what life to work harder and harder to climb the ladder of success only to realize you're leaning against the wrong wall against the wrong wall and i think this is a really good way to think about you know the the thing you're doing in your life you know you constantly you, know, you might constantly change what you're interested in day to day but you're building towards something and for me that doesn't mean building towards something and then packing it all in when i'm 60. well and packing it all in to do what Right. I mean, to yeah, do what? Exactly. what? What are you going to do? I mean, I tried this. I, re I retired at 38, so to speak, and I moved to Tahoe and I skied 120 days a year and I surfed 50 days a year and I traveled and I did all these wonderful things. And it's awesome. And if if you achieve a level of success in your life and where you can finance that kind of a lifestyle for yourself and that's something you want to go do, go do it. Go do it. Amen. Hallelujah. Mm. And at least for me, and I think, you know, this is true for a lot of people. And you talk about these themes, which is um, work is a central part of your personal self-expression. And it's a radical idea for a lot of people, which is why I love what you're doing so much, Ollie. It's a radical idea for many people. It certainly was for me to understand that life is not a thing that happens to us. Yes, there are things that do happen to us, good and bad. And serendipity is a thing. And serendipity, when it's positive, is wonderful. Much of our lives uh, happen to us in that sense. Hmm. However, uh, and I would suspect this is true for you. I'm going to ask you in a second. But it's true for me that there's nothing in my life today that's an accident. Where I live, what I do, who I live with who I'm around, who I work with, who I recreate with, uh, who I enjoy a meal with, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is all very much by design. And so it is a radical thing for a lot of people to say, oh, well, you know, we just sort of get, quote unquote, caught up as if life just grabs us by the hoo-hoo mm. and we just, and then you wake up at 50 or 40 or 60 or 80 or whatever it is and you go, what the fuck happened, right? You can actually design your life. Mm. And so... When you, when you have that mindset, one's ability to say, okay, well, what do I want in life in every domain? And then being a proactive designer of one's life, just that alone is a radical thought for people. And so I'm, I'm curious. I know you made big changes in your life, and that's what led to your podcast and your book and your work today and so forth. And so... Do you feel like your life today is is primarily by design, or did did it happen to you? I think, as you say, there's there's a difference between blind luck and serendipity. To to build on the point you made, and blind luck are yeah, you know, they're those things that you aren't necessarily in control of, and of course, they happen to everyone, and sometimes they're positive, and sometimes they're negative. But you always have the agency to determine your response to that blind luck. And that's definitely something in your control. So even those situations you can take control of to an extent. And, you know, I don't mean to, you know, I don't know everyone's personal situation and I've fortunate not experienced a sort of luck, which has been crushing to, to my life. And I know that happens to people, but I think in general, we can take control of us. It's, I, I use a little um, phrase to open up a chapter about being open-minded in, in the book. Um, which kind of is, is designed to express how people think about luck. You know, some, some people have all the luck. Some people don't have all the luck. Some people make all the luck. And this is the, this is the, there's a really interesting experiment about that, about, it's about mentality. There's a, a British scientist called Richard Wiseman who's done experiments about people who determine and decide how they feel about life um, and uh, uh, even in the same circumstances, say so he laid a five pound note 
um, on a street just in front of a cafe and had two different people walk in. And one of them saw that £5 note, stepped into the cafe, bought himself a coffee with it, struck up a conversation with the person next to him, who, by the way, was an actor. It was all staged. And the next person didn't see that £5 note, went in there, described afterwards the people as rude. And for her, this was a situation typical of her life. You know, another bad day for Brenda, I believe she was called. And the other guy reframed it. He was looking out for those opportunities. And I think that's the thing. I think looking out for open, you know, being open-minded, looking for opportunities is symptomatic of this way, this mentality we have about life. So definitely, you know, my life now is is designed probably a little bit too much. And I sort of fluctuate between thinking sometimes just relax a little bit, man. Like, you know, you don't have to plan every minute of the day. You don't need to be conscious about every single decision you're making. But you know, I did a lot of research for the book, um, some of it through surveys, but much of it talking to people. I talked to hundreds of people. And, you know, one thing I think is true, and it may be because of time, people have a perception they don't have enough time to do these things, but people aren't reflective enough about their lives. And therefore, they aren't active in actually designing them. And I think that's the problem. I think that is the big problem. And, you know, I think it's a problem that can be solved, by the way. I think that, I think it's, you know, it's partly through changing behavior, but there are other ways, I think, and, you know, we could talk about them perhaps, that I think that we can get people to realize that it doesn't take very much to switch that mindset and believe that through just making small amounts of time, small pockets of time and reflective, having some reflective thinking, if you like, that you can change the way that you, you think about life and that can change the course of your life. Amen. Hallelujah, brother. I remember years ago, you know, when I was a young man, Ollie, I uh, was a, a searcher, a seeker, and I tried to be a student. And I um, got into all this personal development stuff and religious stuff. And, you know, I was a a happy, angry young man, if you know what I mean. <laughs> anyway, uh, one of the one of the guys that uh, I spent some time, you know, learning from was Wayne Dyer, his books and his tapes. And I never met the man in person. I wish I had. Um, but I remember he wrote and said somewhere a, a thread that he pulled on in this regard is um, we can wake up every day and choose our personality. Mm. And I remember when he, when I heard that or when I read that, I can't remember if I listened to it or if I read it, but when he said that, to felt like to me, I was like, what, what? I thought, well, you are how you are. And there's some truth to that, but we can also choose to be how we are. Mm. And with my my wife and partner, when we started to get serious you know, we sat down and we said, you know, because this is a second go around for both of us. And we sat down and said, OK, clearly we're doing a serious thing now. <laughs> she figured that out before I did. But, you know, such is the case. <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> and we sat down and had a conversation and it's been an ongoing conversation ever since. And the conversation essentially is if you could design the perfect relationship and the perfect partner, what would that look like? And we have regular check-in conversations. Mm. And we both regularly modify our behavior as a result of those conversations. And we do it regularly. It probably doesn't go more than two or three weeks without some kind of a check-in. Hey, how, how are we doing? How am I doing for you? Yeah. Et cetera. And, uh, you know, a lot of people, I think, can find those kinds of discussions threatening. And I understand why. At the same time, I think they're very freeing because I don't know everything she fucking wants. And I know that I'm not the easiest person to live with. And so uh, if she would prefer I do X and not X, or if she would prefer, you know, it may be a simple one. Every man has to learn this, right? Put down the toilet seat. Put down the okay. toilet seat. Is it really that hard? <laughs> anyway, that's a trivial one. But you get my point, which is yeah. in a relation so you can create your own life. And then when it comes to an important relationship, you can actually co-create your life mm. and i think that by the way extends to work as well i mean i think part of the issue many people have with their careers is they don't even reflect on the things that they enjoy about them and they don't reflect about the things that they don't enjoy them and then before they know it they describe themselves and these are these are sort of words which appeared regularly in the, in the research i did of feeling stuck in a rut you know, or feeling like there's no way out or feeling like they're trapped. 
And these are all, you know, these these are all serious things. And these are these are feelings that people have about their work. And and there's a, there's always a way out. But I think there's a simple solution sometimes, which is this reflective nature. And I really, this I think is the biggest change in my life over the past three years. So I think I I spent ten years. So I in three years ago I had been through a typical founder's journey i suppose i set up a company an agency when i was 25 didn't really know what i was doing just went with it i knew you know just kept finding solutions to the problems which arose and learned loads and made loads of mistakes and had various ups and downs but you know on the whole it was a really positive experience but 10 years in working with the same business partner and we worked really well together but i think in that yeah after that decade just needed a change and alongside that i'd had three kids um, you know, we, my wife and I've been married for 10 years and I just, I didn't even realize, I didn't even know what the word was at the time, but I'd burnt out a few times. You know, I didn't, I'd never heard that expression until later. And then when I look back, I think, okay, burnout, it's not just exhaustion. It's sort of sense of cynicism about what you're doing as well. Um, a negative attitude about, you know, the things that are happening around you, all of these things are, you know, what the definition of burnout is, if you look at what the WHO say about it. And that tip, that was, that was me, that was me. And I, and I had to get out of that situation. So when I removed myself and I did not know what I was going to do next, I, I just, I knew I needed to do something new. I didn't know what I was going to do. And one of my friends said, look, you should start writing about this stuff because, you know, my intention was start another company. And he said, I've done that before. And I'm 10 years down the line. I can't bloody remember what I did. What was I thinking at that time? And now I'm 10 years on and I feel again in that same situation. This time has passed by. So I thought, well, I'll start writing. And actually that's opened up so many doors. And it's not just opened doors up in terms of opportunities, although it has. In fact, I mean, you could trace that day to here, sat in front of you, because actually when I started writing about this, you, you know, your books were some of the things I wrote about. I was kind of exploring my bookcase in... You can't see it behind me, but I've got a bunch of books on that bookcase, which I was reading and reflecting on through my writing. But actually, if more, more than anything, it helped me discover stuff about myself and about what I wanted to do. And this goes back to this point. And what I realized, and this is fairly recent revelation, I suppose, but the moments that will shape your future are happening every day. And you should treat capturing these insights as, as an opportunity. Actually, no, treat them as a responsibility, a responsibility to yourself and to those whose future you can help shape. But if you don't do it, you're never going to learn those lessons and you're never going to achieve your potential. And I think for me, this experience has unlocked that realization. And I hope it helps me take towards my potential. And I think that's what I think that's the opportunity for others as well. Is it wrong for one man to love another man? <laughs> <laughs> and and, and it, what I also love about this conversation and your work is it's the complete opposite of hustle culture. And um, look, on one hand, you know, and I just did a post about this, there's a real shift going on now in Silicon Valley from uh, quote-unquote wellness cultures uh, to quote-unquote performance cultures. And my assertion of the last 20 years is we lost our moorings. That is to say, uh, work became a coddling, cuddling, overwoke, oversensitive, how you feeling today kind of a place. And I'll never forget how many years ago, we uh, uh, Facebook had purchased the old uh, Silicon Graphics campus, and uh, we had a friend who was a senior executive there, direct report to Zuckerberg at the time. Uh, she's no longer with the company, but. And so, and I don't know how long they'd been there, but not that long. And so, and it was like the talk of Silicon Valley and so forth and so on. So she invited um, my brother from another mother, Al Ramadan, co-author of Play Bigger, and, and I over for a visit. She gave us a tour. Of the, and it, it's incredible. And it's like incredibly done. And it's, it's this and it's that. But you know what it is? They literally, have you been, you've been to Disneyland or Disney World or one of those places? Mm. That's mm. what it looks like. Yeah. And they've got like woodworking shops, and like it's, we're far beyond free lattes mm. and avo toast. Yeah. We're like, and 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 free laundry. We're like everything. It is this bizarre. Mm. Old, I don't know if you remember this Ira Levin book, The Stepford Wives. 
but it's like this very weird work zombie fake community environment. And I remember um, leaving the campus and and literally saying to Al, I'm going to get in that Shelby Cobra Mustang and I'm going to drive that fucking thing at 200 miles an hour off the Golden Gate Bridge because I can't live in this fucked up world anymore. This is so crazy. Yeah. And so there's yeah, this... Yeah, I mean, call, call, go ahead, call me go a cynic, by the way. What's call that? Call me a cynic, but... Well, I, I, I think two things. One, I don't believe... Look, the intentions may have been positive there, but I can't... I've never been able to get around the fact that if you design an environment which is as good as being at home and people stay, spend more time there... Is that really a conducive place to breed independent thought? I mean, this is the thing. I mean, I, I feel like you're not telling me that those people who are living in this coddled world are also going to be, you know, you're going to be breeding the independence of thought, which allows you to keep innovating and keeping ahead of the competition. I just, I, I, it doesn't really add up to me, that idea. Now, and I know people who've worked at, facebook and google and companies like this and look it's a it's a great it's a great ride while you're there but i think the feeling often when they leave is a sense of relief and actually it's almost a bit like stockholm syndrome it's like you you know you've been you've been in this environment you haven't even realized that you've been i don't know it's been constrained in some way until you're out of it um and look it you know that that life isn't for me and i guess and I, and I see your point. I mean, I think we it's easy to swing one way or the other. And we are speaking during what's teetering on the edge of recession. You know, I'm not sure officially if we're in it yet. And people are changing their mindset and we're seeing some reductions in headcounts and things like this. So, of course, the natural thing is to say, swing the other way and say, look, performance culture, performance culture. Of course, somewhere in the middle is probably the right answer here. But we definitely went too far the other way. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, years ago now, Ollie, we had uh, Joe DeSina on. He's the founder of the Spartan Race and the category designer of that kind of whole extreme race world. And he said something interesting to me. He said, the Western human being, Western society human being, is the only creature on earth that does not prepare its young for the world. Hmm. And he said, if you look at the animal kingdom, the number one job that primarily, of course, mothers and some species fathers as well, but their primary job is to prepare them for the world. So, yes, they protect them and they coddle them when they're newly born and all that sort of stuff. But sooner or later, as they are able to do some things on their own, the parent or mother's job is to teach them how to hunt and how to protect themselves and, and so forth and so on. And yeah, so there's this this coddling, and and it's interesting to me that, you know, so I tweeted, there is no higher corporate core value than produce legendary results or get fired. Mm-hmm. And today, that is a incredibly controversial, and to many people, because they let me the fuck know, upsetting idea. And that's how far off our moorings we are. Now, I'm not suggesting we should, you know, uh, one of our favorite movies of all time, of course, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross and Coffee are for Closers. And that's all very entertaining. And I was suggesting we go back to some Neanderthal idiotic situation where we're whipping people to do shit. But at the same time, we have completely gone the other way mm. to the point where we're building Disneyland for people to, quote, work at. And there's a very interesting thing going on right now in Silicon Valley, um, thanks to Elon, which is I think he's fired about half. It might even be – I thought I read maybe 70% now of the people at Twitter. Mm. I think uh, – did you read mm. that? I think I think it's – I think I read the other day 75%. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So virtually every CEO in Silicon Valley is watching very closely. And the reason they are is there's an aha – which is there's a real cost to this coddle culture, which is we have, in some cases, thousands or tens of thousands of people that work here that actually don't do fucking anything that produces anything that you could call a result that matters. And so I think part of what's going on in Silicon Valley 
with these layoffs, there's certainly investor pressures. There's certainly herd mentality. There's all sorts of things going on. But one of them is this aha that says, wait a minute. We have created an environment where we've hired a shit ton of people, the vast majority of whom um, sit on Zooms and don't do much. Mm. And maybe we don't need all these people. And it's because of a lack of focus on performance and results. And it's executive management's fault. We created this world, but we created it in response to what felt like a very competitive and, of course, was job market. At the same time, we lost our minds because you say, well, you know, we're going to hire a lower level to at best mid-level person. We're going to pay them $300,000 a year. And we don't really know what the fuck they're doing in terms of producing a result that matters in the context of a customer outcome, a revenue outcome, um, or, or some other outcome that contributes to our success. And I think that's a very powerful thing. Yeah, I mean, I tend to agree. I mean, I think the it is often a leadership issue. I mean, you know, I, I think the one really strange decision many businesses are making is to enforce this idea of implant, um, uh, uh, what's, uh, surveillance technology. And what's surveillance technology? Well, it's, it's surveillance technology is an d- indication that you don't trust people. But the, the problem is it's also a sign that you aren't able to effectively measure the job they're doing. Because if you have to surveil them, that suggests that you don't know whether the outcome, they're creating any positive outcomes at all. And this is like the, 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 worst, um, the worst outcome of all of this, really, which is a lack of trust. Now, you know, I, I know that the, within different industries, you have to measure people in different ways. And it's far easier to measure a salesperson in, than in some ways a creative, perhaps, you know, and I've worked in the advertising industry and in, and there are some jobs which are just e- harder to um, define, you know, KPIs or OKRs or whatever way you want to, you want to track these things, you know, whatever IUDs and FARTs. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, but that joke know, always w- makes what's... me laugh. I've been telling that joke for 25 <laughs> years. It makes me laugh every time. I don't know if it makes anybody else laugh, but, <laughs> but the, um, but, you know, this is this is an issue. So, you know, I see I, and, and I, you know, I hate the idea of being somebody tracking my mouse movements and tracking whether I come in and out of the building and tracking how long all this and this and that and this and that. But all it tells me is that the person managing me doesn't know what they're looking for and whether I'm doing a good job or not. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, there's there's lots of broken things and sometimes a short, sharp shock is what we need to, to shake things up. Because, again, look, I'm, again, I'm the same as you. I'm not advocating we mistreat people and that we chuck people out in the street. But I, I tend to think that if you're one of those people treading water, doing a job that doesn't really matter, that can't be particularly fulfilling either. And it's, you know, in, in, in British football, in English football, there's a real problem where a lot of the best talent is scooped up by the very top Premier League clubs. And then what ends up happening is all the lower league clubs, these smaller clubs in different parts of the um, different parts of the country, are weakened. So every season, at the beginning of every season, what we have to do is loan players from the top clubs to the smaller clubs. And what this does is sort of redistribute talent. And we ended up with that in a lot of the Silicon Valley companies, where they're hoarding the best talent, but they're just sitting around doing nothing. Now, the, what happens in football, by the way, is a lot of these great youngsters go to these big academies, don't get an opportunity to play and develop their skills and end up not having a great career. And, you know, it's probably a decent analogy for what's happening to some of those people who are sat in the offices or not, sitting at home, twiddling their thumbs and, um, you know, wondering what the hell it is they're doing there. So I don't think, you know, a redistribution of talent is probably a good thing as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we had in the most recent boom in Silicon Valley is the person who should be um, a director of product management doing a great job in your company becomes a CMO or a founder Mm. CEO and they are either not ready uh, or um, they Peter principled out. And so instead of being a legendary uh, director of product management, now they're a CEO or CMO and they flame out. Mm. And so um, that re-swizzling of the deck uh, can be very important. And I know many a legendary person who was very forward on their skis in their career. And I applaud that. I've spent my entire life forward on my skis. 
And it is possible to get into a place where you shouldn't be. And many legendary people take a step back in title and in pay, in role, um, to develop themselves. And I was having a conversation with a friend of mine yesterday, and um, I was urging him to kind of spread his wings and, and, and ha-ha, play bigger. And he said, yes, I want to do that. And we were talking about the specifics about that for him and his life. And he said to me something I don't know that I've ever quite heard. And I'm not going to get it exactly right, but he said something to the effect of, I don't want to play at a level that I'm not ready to play at until I'm ready to. Like, I want to be ready for, because I was painting this giant picture for him. And he's like, I want to do all that, but I want to get there the right way. And that led to a conversation about I'm a huge fight fan. And the way the fighting world works is simple. If you want to be the heavyweight champion of the world, you don't start off fighting Tyson Fury. That's not what happens. What happens is you go down your local gym and they teach you how to throw a jab and then they Mm. teach you how to throw a cross, et cetera, et cetera. And then and then you 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 fight in a local organization. They often around here. I don't know if they're called this around the world, but around here they're called smokers and different dojos and gyms will put together fights and charge five bucks and a bunch of folks, men and women will come and fight. And and so all of a sudden, if you're smoking everybody at the smokers. Uh, and then you gradually move up. And so by the time you walk into an arena with 50,000 screaming people and 4 million pay-per-view buys to face the most terrifying human being in the world, <laughs> you kind of earned the right to be there. But more importantly, you're comfortable there. Yeah. Yeah. I like the analogy. <laughs> So tell me what you recommend to people. I mean, you made a huge change in your life um, and you have interviewed all these people and you have your wonderful podcast and you've done all this work. And so if I'm somebody who says to you, hey, Ali, I get it. I- I'm totally with you. And maybe I'm not burned out like you were, but I can see there from here and I'm about ready to make a change. Um, and I reject this sort of bullshit about uh, work-life b- balance. What What would you tell me to do? I mean, broadly speaking, I think now's a good time just to take control of your career. And and I mean that as in taking control for yourself. You know, I mean, obviously, everybody should be thinking if they're, you know, if, if work matters to them and not every single person in the world cares really about their career, but I think a lot of people do. Um, I think the first, first thing's first is to realize that you've got to do something about it and take action. Um, now, for me, that is identifying what actually matters to you. What do you want to get out of it? You know, what are your values? And this sounds like wishy-washy stuff, but I I went through this process of writing down the things that are most important to me. And then when I was quite clear about it, it suddenly, you know, it was, it was really obvious that I should have been doing all of this stuff along. And the things I wrote down were autonomy. So I, I want to have control over my future. I don't like people really telling me what to do, which is why I start my own company and I'm, you know, always, you know, I work with clients and I, you know, collaborate with other people, but ultimately I decide what I do when I do it. And that, that really matters to me, you know, creativity. I realized that I didn't have enough creativity in my life. And now every single day I try and do something creative curiosity. I follow my curiosity. And as long as I'm doing that and I'm able to continually learn, I feel like I'm making progress and that delivers the next, which is, I feel like I'm constantly growing. And then the last one, and I think you'll probably appreciate this good humor. If I can't go through every day and have a laugh about myself at myself and just about the situation, then life's pretty tough. And so I only say that to illustrate that I actually sat down and wrote down what my five values were. And I think a few years ago, I would have laughed at myself for doing that. And I realized, you know what, unless you do it, then how are you going to know whether to how to measure whether every day is doing the things you want to do? So that's a pretty good place to start. Amen. Hallelujah. And we get caught in big ways and, and in little ways. I'll give you a simple example. I have um, a nephew who's about to turn 18. And last night he called my wife and I and he had a concern. He's going off to college next year and, and so he's, he's ending his high school career now. And we're planning this wonderful trip, kind of a guy's trip, rite of passage, go to Montana and ride horses and become cowboys and – eat bison, (laughs) drink whiskey and shit, right? (laughs) And so uh, anyway, he had a concern about the trip and he called and he was, I was in the middle of something. So he was interrupting 
I was writing and I was in the zone. And in that split second, I thought, you know, fuck off. His name's Fox and we call him Foxy. And I was like, ah, fuck off, Foxy. This is a dumb concern. And I, I'm in the middle of something. This is what I'm thinking. And as I'm thinking this, I immediately stop myself and I say to myself in the moment, hey, asshole, what's more important than talking to Foxy? Mm. Oh, yeah, right. Nothing. I can get back into flow. Maybe it'll take me 10 minutes. Maybe getting out of flow with this writing is irritating. So what? You write all the time, idiot. Mm. Foxy doesn't call all the time. You know, 19 yeah. or 18-year-olds don't call very often. And so so even learning little techniques to manage yourself in a moment like that helps to realign you on a true north. And to your point, if you've never sat down and thought about it, if you've never sat down and written, okay, well, what does matter to me? Mm. And in because I try to do a lot of thinking in that regard, in that moment, the work that I've done in the past in this regard stops me from being stupid because there's nothing more important in my life than Foxy. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the writing thing does work. I mean, I... I never wrote so after three years ago. I never wrote. I write emails, but I never. I never sat down and wrote. And there is, I think, I mentioned earlier on. There's something cathartic about it. You know, there is something healing about this for yourself. You know, actually expressing how you're feeling, particularly when you do get into flow. Um, and also, it doesn't always have to have a purpose. You know, we we both write. We both create content. And of course, when you're creating content and particularly in your case you've got a paid newsletter you've got to deliver the goods you know you do ultimately you've got a contract you know with with people i'm going to deliver you insightful content on a regular basis so it's from that respect in that respect there is a there's an outcome you've got to deliver but you know what there's a huge benefit in writing with no purpose at all um there's a great book um have you heard of the moth it's this no i uh, haven't tell uh, me it's a so it's a bit like a it's a bit like stand-up Mm -hmm. but they tell stories. So they stand on stage and tell stories. Um, and there's a, one of the most famous, most successful guys in this, in this movement is called Matthew Dick, I think Matthew Dix. And he wrote a really, really good book called story. His Worthy. name is Matthew Dix. Yeah. Wow. I think so. He's either, yeah. uh, he's, he's either been crushed by life or he's one tough dude. <laughs> well, I mean, he stands off on stage in front of thousands of people. So I reckon he's built up a pretty thick skin. So there we go. Maybe you, he was, maybe he ever... was destined from an early age. <laughs> Not to diverge, but there's this expression that's emerged in the last handful of years. And it came from one guy, best I can tell. And that's comedian um, Louis C.K. <laughs> he did a bit years ago about he cut some guy off on the road or something happened on the road and the guy honked at him and yelled at him, you know, fuck you, eat a bag full of dicks. <laughs> and the comedy routines about Louie going, Hey, wait a minute. Don't just drive off. Eat a bag full of dicks. You know, and the bit goes on and on and on about how do you get a bag full of dicks and what is a bag yeah. full of dicks and do they have balls and do they, and he just goes on and on about the whole thing about Anyways, but I digress. So, so his name is is Matthew Dix. Matthew Dix. Well, God I'll bless to, Matthew. I'll have, to, Dix. I'll have to look it up. <laughs> I'll have to look it up. But I'm pretty sure it is. Um, and anyway, he what Matthew Dix talks about is um, is is the power of writing stuff down for a start. And uh, there's two two really. He's got a really nice turn of phrase. So one is he talks about this idea of free writing. And the idea of free writing is you literally write whatever comes into your head and you build on the, the idea that springs into your head. And it might be something that happened 30 years ago and you've never you've never remembered that moment until right now. And you, you then think about what happened next. You just write down what comes into your head. And he and he describes this as thinking through the end of your pen. I think that's what he describes it as, which is a nice little way of putting it. Um, and that is really valuable. If you, honestly, sit down for 15 minutes and just do that. Just think of a random thought. I don't know. Joey Ramone, right? Joey Ramone. What comes next? What comes next? Whatever comes next. Then whatever comes next after that, you write it down. Now, there's a couple of reasons this is really cool. Well, A, you remember stuff you have not remembered and you've not thought about for years. Yes. And two, 
you start making connections between things in new ways. We're talking about creativity in a minute. I mean, what's creativity if it's not making connections between things in different ways? So I, I, I do think there's a, a, there's a value in this. But the other thing, actually, by the way, which is a, a habit I've developed, and actually I'd, I was already doing this before I read his book. He just he described it far more articulately than I ever would. So I've got this habit um, which I've built up over the past few years. And I sit down at the end of the day and I note down a few highlights of my day from work often. You know, so what were three highlights? And sometimes if you had a shit day, this can be quite difficult, but I force myself to write down three highlights of my day. And it might, you know, today, spoke to Christopher on Follow You Different, you know, and maybe take a photo of it and I'll attach this. And this is a, this is a memory which will be logged in there. And, and frankly, it, I'd, I'd forget about some of the details of this. It's so easy to forget, isn't it? Life flies by, but I won't because I've logged it. But what I also do is I'd remove myself from the work conversation, the work thoughts, and I write down one memory, uh, one noteworthy memory from today related to my personal life. And, you know, often it's something silly my kids said to me or something, maybe just a chance encounter on the street with somebody random and something funny's happened. And, you know, it has this strange sensation, which A, it brings more colour to your life. And again, I go back to, I mean, I keep coming back to it, it's a reflection. Um, it brings more colour to life because you're suddenly looking out for these these notable things that are happening. But it also does something really interesting, which all of these these two practices, because you're logging this information and you're, you're, you're noting it down, it feels like your memory's getting better. And it has this strange sensation that time's slowing down. And I've had, I had that, this sensation for 10 years, by the way, which I just felt like my life was disappearing. So when I reflect on the, you know, when my, when my 10 year old, he's now 10, was a little, little we were as a baby, as a toddler, I don't remember very much. And that saddens me. It saddens me that I can't remember some of the moments. He, my he can't old, either. No, nah, exactly. He won't remember. He won't remember any of it. But it saddens me. And now my four-year-old, who I've been doing this thing for three years, every night I sit at the end of the day and I do it, and I just remember so much more. And it's an incredible experience. Um, and I suppose all of these things are, 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 you know, again, I sat down to myself and said, I've got to do something about the fact that I can't bloody remember what's happening all the time. And I made the conscious decision to do this, like you made that conscious decision to pick up the the, the call from Fox. I made this decision to spend time doing this every day and it's and and it well it has a few things. Let me tell you a few huge benefits that I think other people would benefit from this practice. One, it reduces stress and anxiety for me. At the end of the day, I just stop for 5 minutes and write stuff down and it just gets things out of my head. Two, I can see the progress I'm making. So now when I reflect on all this stuff, a, I can see what I was thinking at certain times. And we always talk about decision-making. Why did he make that decision? Well, it's really difficult to remember how he made the decision unless you wrote it down. So I, 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 I see the progress I'm making and I can visualize it and I can see my progression through through storing this information. The other thing is I spot patterns. And this is amazingly, you know, so that, you, know, you said before, what's a great way for someone to start if they want to start you know, do some, doing something different in their career? Well, if you've not spotted patterns in what you love doing, it's going to be really difficult to make the right decision about what you want to do next. Because you said earlier on that COVID quote, don't leave, don't lean your ladder up against the wrong wall. You really want to be thinking about what you're going to do next. And particularly when I talk to people who think about starting business, I'm look, look, do you want to do this for five to 10 years? If you've not even thought about what you love doing every day, how do you know whether this is the right decision to, to do this for the next five to 10 years? And the last couple of things, it, as I said before, my memory's improved, which is incredible. And the last one, it actually shows a positive relationship between work and life, going back to the original point, because I can see this correlation. I can see that when things are tough, because sometimes they're tough, it's affecting my work. And actually, when I try and reframe it and put a you know, positive slant on it, that actually I have the agency to take myself out of it. And I can see a real positive difference. So there's there's one habit you could develop. Anybody listening could develop. It takes less than five minutes, less than it takes less time to say, than it takes to say, make a cup of tea, and you can do it every day, and it will really radically change the way you think about your life. Amen, Hallelujah, brother. And you know, for years, I, I I I've always been a deep thinker, but not a writer. And I I bought the story that dyslexics don't write. Mm. It's so hard to read. How the fuck could you write? And when I went to go write, it was horrible. 
And I had an old boss, the CEO of a company called Scient, uh, named Bob Howe, and he was, he's an incredible guy. I'd actually love to have him on the podcast. One of the smartest guys I've ever met. And he asked me to kind of lead a, a, a project to write a, a strategic paper, kind of outlining a bunch of very important shit at the time. And we had a gal in the company who was a Stanford MBA, and she was kind of going to be the person that did it. And I, as the CMO company was, of the company, was kind of going to oversee it. And da, 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 da. Anyway, I went and showed him the first – and I was, you know, 30, 31 at the time. And fairly far along in my career because I started early. I started at 18. Anyway, so I shared with him sort of the working draft thing that we had. And he came and he sat down with me. And he did it in a very kind way. And he didn't know I was dyslexic. And he said to me with a big heart, he said, I've never met anybody who's such a powerful thinker and powerful speaker who can't write worth a shit. And he said um, – if you could add writing to your skill set, you'd be unbeatable. And so, mm. write. And we clearly need to get you a lot more help with this project because this is garbage. <laughs> <laughs> and it was very hard to hear, but he didn't do it in a, he didn't do it in an attacking way. He did it in a constructive way. But he was very brutal about it. Uh, and that sent that set me on a different path. Yeah, And so uh, all I'm saying is how much I agree with you, even for those of us who um, feel for one reason or another, oh, you, you can't be a writer. And the evidence is clear you can't. <laughs> it's not like just, oh, I think I can't. No, no, no. I've actually done this. And very smart people have told me how much it profoundly sucks. And so we can even come from that place to a place where you write regularly and and it makes a difference in your life and then if you publish yeah you know you can make a big difference to others which brings me to a question you and I met in the digital world we've never met in person in the IRL and we met as a result of uh your work and my work showing up in the digital world and uh, I don't know exactly how you did it or what you did. I don't remember. Maybe you do. But I don't remember how we first got connected. Uh, I, don't rem I don't remember the beginnings of it. But what I do know is over time I developed an affection towards you and an appreciation towards what it looked like you were trying to do and have, you know, been impressed with what you're doing ever since. And I uh, was stoked to be on your podcast and all these sorts of things. So anyway, I'm leading to a question, which is, you seem to be somebody, Ollie, who has developed or a, a talent or an ability to connect with people in this digital world that is uh, very, very powerful and somewhat unique. Can you kind of pop the hood on that for me a little bit? Well, I mean, it's kind of you to say, and I think you're right in a sense. I think I, I was somebody for whom networking was a dirty word. I hated it. And and bear, bear in mind, I ran my own company for 10 years. I worked in sales, you know, before I set my company up. And most of the time I worked, you know, within my own company, I was selling stuff. My job was to contact people and try and flog them something and uh, convince them that what I was selling was going to add value to their lives. Um, but put me in a room full of strangers and I would shrink towards the door. I hated it. I hated it. Um, but what I... And this, look, you know, there was a, those couple of years in lockdown were really tough, you know, I mean, they, they were tough, you know, but tough for many people. And, but, you know, I found, I found it really difficult in many ways. I was stuck at home with three young kids, a uh, newborn baby and two really young kids having to go to school. And that, that was, <laughs> oh, never want to do what that What did again. I do in a former but, life to deserve this dear <laughs> exactly. Lord? It was, it was hard. But, but I think what I, I, I said earlier on, I changed my mentality in the search for something new, something that I suppose I, I felt like I had left something on the table in my last job. I didn't think I had really maximized discovering who I was and trying to do something great. And I thought, you know what, this time I want to, I want to try and do that and, you know, go back to writing. <laughs> the only reason I published online was because I didn't think anyone would read it <laughs> because I, I was like, you know, there's no way I would have taken that chance. I thought no one's going to read this anyway, but, and, and very few people did initially, <laughs> but enough, enough people to make me do it again. And actually the people who were contacting me were, were the other dads with young kids. He said, oh, I can really see myself 
in what you're doing. I'm at that stage as well. And I've got young kids and I'm struggling to work out how to balance work and life. And I've started, yeah, there's something, there's something here. So, I, and that's when I started carrying on writing. And then this was in February, 2020 before the world went up, you know, turned upside down. And I was writing about this sort of intersection of work and life and I saw it resonated with people. Um, and more and more people signed up to the newsletter that I set up. But then I thought, do you know what? This is a great way to demonstrate to people that I'm interested in their work. And, you know, the, I'll tell you how I, how we connected. I sent you an email and said, I really like your work, Christopher, and I'm starting a new podcast. And would you grace me with your presence i appreciate you're really busy but i'd love to chat to you and you know what i think i probably did is drop in a couple of things which could only be i could only say if it was obvious that i listened to your stuff and read your stuff you know the sort of you know certain phrases that we all use and certain ideas and i would have shared those with you and actually that's how i've got pretty much all of the people onto my podcast i've demonstrated a genuine interest i actually contact people and it's not always to try and get them on the podcast or to interview them sometimes if i see somebody's written something interesting online i make a point of saying hey i really enjoyed reading that or that is a great point of view or i've never heard it put like that before um because you know what it means a lot and when it's when it's people saying that to me it, it really it's it's a it's a good experience and i think for me it opened my eyes to the fact that actually this doesn't need to be awkward it can be done asynchronously in the language of today i can just send someone a message and actually put a bit of thought into it and look i reckon 95 percent of people respond to it you know even some of you know a lot of busy people that i contact a lot of very successful people who i'm sure get hundreds thousands of emails and i think though if you put a bit of thought into it and demonstrate that you actually care and makes a difference because look when you're doing the things that we do you get a lot of spam you get a lot of people saying oh here's a guest for your show and they're you know a financial advisor from north london and i'm like well you've clearly never ever listened to the stuff that i do because that's not relevant and you can spot spam a mile off and i think for me, there's the opportunity. You know, it's content creation super powered my networking because I can demonstrate my own ideas. But it, but actually, that's it. That's secondary. I think. I think the main thing for me is I've discovered that you can connect with people and just show that you actually care about it and that you're interested. I think most people want to hear that, and they won't always spend an hour with you or a few hours of you like you've been kind enough to do on my podcast. But you know, if nothing else, I've built an amazing network over the past few years, which I'd never have done before. Well, you're great at it. You're super thoughtful at it. And this is the part maybe a lot of people don't think about, which is when you're doing that, clearly you're doing it because you have a personal motivation to reach out and maybe get me on the podcast or whatever it was. And actually now I'm remembering and I, I was not guesting, I think. Is that right when you reached out? Yeah. And I said, hey, come come yeah. back and come back sometime in the future and, and we'll see. Because I go through these phases where – I'm focused – generally today it's writing, but it could be another thing, family thing, could be whatever. And I, and I don't – and I'm just clearing everything out. And so, mm. um, and so I go on these long sort of, uh, sort of three to six-month runs where I won't guest on any other podcasts. And I'll, I'll essentially try to get everything out that isn't the primary focus. And I remember you followed up and you said, hey, six months ago or whatever it was – you told me to follow up in six months and here I am. <laughs> so that was the other mm -hmm. thing too. It's like, well, you clearly had done your homework. You clearly did know our work. And, and then uh, I blew you off, hopefully nicely. And then you came back very professionally. That's a, I mean, it sounds so fucking simple, but mm. it's so rare. Yeah. A lot of this stuff sounds simple. You know, I, I, it's really interesting. And, you know, as I do consume your work, I really love this idea of obvious, 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 and obvious non-obvious content. And we we won't go into the detail now, but it's kind of obvious what those things mean, right? I mean, and and when you first start creating, it's really difficult sometimes because the the natural inclination is to think this is too obvious. It's too obvious what I'm doing. Um, and some of these ideas are too obvious, but sometimes you just need to reframe or insert something which is counterintuitive, which of course is the work-life flywheel idea. I mean, I, I, there's, there's nothing 
complex about this model that I'm laying out in the book. I'm talking about having a, a, the right mindset to incorporate creativity and experimentation, experimentation into your life, to build a community, to focus on learning. These, these things, uh, they sound obvious, but this, and this is a really nice turn of phrase as well, which I've heard used, which I like. It's not obvious before, obvious after. And that for me is the sign of great content because you know, what you're saying there is it's, it's something which immediately resonates with people and they just not heard it put like that before. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's, that's the key thing. Amen. Hallelujah. Um, and when you reframe things for people, all of a sudden they look at them very differently. Uh, we have a situation going on in Santa Cruz right now where we've had tremendous weather this winter, uh, huge storms, huge snow in the Sierra, um, uh, major highways shut down in ways that is highly unusual. Anyway, one of the effects of that, there's tremendous damage done to the Santa Cruz coastline and major parts of the Monterey Bay. The president of the United States came here a couple of weeks ago and doled out the FEMA money and all this sort of stuff. And uh, there's this huge part of one of the main roads on the coast that has kind of fallen away. And, there's a huge contingent of people here who believe that we should do nothing with the coastline, that we should just let Mother Nature do whatever she wants. And so in this case, it, this it's called Westcliff Drive, a very famous part of Santa Cruz. And so the debate was, should we or shouldn't we let West, the Westcliff turn into a one-lane road because the ocean is taking away part of the bluff here, which means the road can't be, if you leave it all alone and let Mother Nature do what she wants. So there's this whole debate about what do we do about the road? That's the debate. Hmm. Well, my buddy Al, uh, Al Ramadan, co-author of Play Bigger, brother from another mother, uh, he, he lives here in Santa Cruz and he's kind of the, he's sort of the, um, uh, one of the guys behind the scenes. And he says, this is completely asinine. This isn't a conversation about a road or whether it should be a, a one way or a two lane or a one lane. This stretch of geography is an extraordinarily beautiful gem and jewel in the United States, in the world, and here in Santa Cruz. He's the chairman of Save the Waves, and Save the Waves protects um, surf breaks because they're under threat, like a lot of our environment. Anyway, Long story longer, he forms a group of people to kind of get in front of this thing to use category design skills to reframe the conversation. And the way he reframes it is this part of our community is a recreation and environmental ecosystem that is beloved by the community and that is highly required for um, plants and animals and humans. And so what's required here is not a discussion about should we or shouldn't we do something about the road. What's required here is this is – we should think of this as a sacred place and a, and a park. And what do we want to do with this iconic part of Santa Cruz for the next 100 years? And how do we mm -hmm. create an environment for everybody to enjoy this recreational area and this incredible part of um, – the, the world and the country. And in so doing, flip the whole – so now the conversation in the community is not about should we let the ocean you know, blow the road apart. The conversation now is how do we create and preserve an incredible, uh, historic, beautiful part of our community? And it's a complete mm -hmm. reframing. And now everybody who's arguing about the road sounds like and frankly looks like a moron because <laughs> – Al did the category design from two and yeah. changed the conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. What could the future be? What could the future be? <laughs> now, Ollie, is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? Well, I mean, look, I'm not putting it to sound like a broken record, but um, I'll say it again. I think, you know, the obvious thing often to say when people are thinking about whether they want to do something else is, is to take action. And it's true, you know, nothing's going to happen if you sit on your hands and do nothing. But 
and I've quoted a few people today. Uh, I don't know why I've started rolling out all the quotes, but I, I had a great episode of Follow Your Different, actually, with Sarah Steen Greenberg from the D School at Stanford. And this is something I included in my book. I loved it so much because she said, reflection is the underappreciated partner of action. And I just think that's reflection. Sorry, you cut out there for a second. Reflection is the what? So reflection is the underappreciated partner of action. And, and who said that on follow, somebody to. said that on follow you different? Yeah, Sarah Steen Greenberg. She's the yeah. she's the head of the D School yes. at Stanford. And I and I and I wrote it down when I heard that and I put it in my book because that sums up beautifully for me that you know, you you've got to take action, but unless you step take a step back and realize why you're doing it and also recognize the progress you're making, then you know, you're not gonna get where you want to go. Thanks, Ollie. And uh, you're, you're you. welcome back anytime. And forward, Ho, you're doing amazing work. I, I'm so ecstatic for you and your family. And uh, congratulations on your success so far. And um, and thank you for writing your book. Thanks, Christopher. Appreciate the support. Well, there he is, the legendary Ollie Henderson. And I'm sure hope you enjoyed that conversation as much if, as I did. And if you did, um, there's nothing more powerful than word or mouth. Word or mouth? Word of mouth. WOM. <laughs> if you're going to get a podcast, you should learn how to talk. And we really appreciate your WOM. So we'd love it if you shared this episode on social media and anybody in your life who uh, is feeling empowered or feels empowered by real different conversations, why not click the share button on your um, podcast app right now? Ollie's new book is called The Work life flywheel harness the work revolution and reimagine your career without fear ollie also has a great podcast called future work life so check out future work life and his book the work life flywheel wherever you get legendary oddcasts and books all right we would like to thank thank you thank you so much for your time and attention it means the world to me and to all of us here that's it my friends please stay safe Stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different.